This is New Classical Tracks from listener-supported American public media. If you're enjoying this podcast, the best thing that you can do for the show is to tell somebody else about it. Help spread the word and take a moment to rate and review us on your podcasting app. Violinist Rachel Barton Pine has been living at the intersection of metal and classical music most of her life. On her new recording, Dependent Arising, these two worlds collide in the best possible way. She pairs the Shostakovich Violin Concerto No. 1 with a new concerto written for her by a fellow metalhead, Earl Menin. It's really fascinating to hear Rachel talk about how metal actually was her form of relaxation. Well, you'll find out why as we learn more on this week's edition of New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher. Well, let's dive into your new recording, Dependent Arising. Now, this is not the first time you and I have had a chance to talk about you being a huge fan of metal. And so now we just got a really good reason to talk about it because we have a whole <laughs> recording that kind of celebrates it. So over your career, you've been very transparent of um, being a fan of what you call the thrash genre. You've played music in Earth and Grave. Are you still playing with Earth and Grave? No, we didn't break up. We're still great friends, but we sort of literally disbanded because our bass player's other group um, started really taking off and doing a lot of um, festivals in Europe and stuff. And then our guitar player, who was our main songwriter, moved to Texas. And my daughter started needing me to practice with her so many hours a day. It just seemed like we couldn't squeeze it in anymore. But we've actually been talking about a reunion tour, so hope that happens. Awesome. Well, you've also performed some of your favorite metal pieces on rock radio stations. So tell me a little bit about that. And did that in any way help to, you know, bring metal fans to your classical concerts or the other way around? Yeah. So basically... All these years growing up, um, you know, from age 10, when Santa Claus brought me my first transistor radio and I discovered all the other kinds of music out there um, on the airwaves and was particularly drawn to metal, it never occurred to me to play anything but classical on my own instrument and remained that way for many years till I was in my early 20s. And actually what changed it all was when I played the national anthem for a Chicago Bulls playoff game. I got to meet Michael and Scotty and all the guys, and it was a thrilling evening. But um, what I didn't think about is millions of people saw me on TV. And then I started getting strangers coming up to me on the street saying, wow, I had no idea that the violin was so cool. And it, it, I realized that people might hear, you know, some some of the more soothing variety of classical music in a dentist's waiting room or something and like not realize that there's all of this, you know, really exciting, bombastic stuff. Of course, I had made a Star Spangled Banner version with all the Paganini techniques and everything. So I thought, okay, how can I 
introduce people to this side of classical, um, the more intense stuff. So that's when I started going on the rock radio stations, and I would use a cover song kind of as a bridge. Like, here's a tune you already know, but here's how it sounds played on the violin. Not classicized, like that kind of Bridgerton approach where you take rock music, but you sort of make it sound Mozartian, but actually trying to keep the edge, trying to really rock out on the violin. Um, and and then going from that into like an Isai Sonata or a Paganini Caprice, right? They're on the rock station to say, hey, this is some classical music. And not only that, but a lot of the great rock artists were heavily influenced by classical music and listened to it all the time. So, you know, if you like this band and this band likes symphonic stuff, check out the orchestra show this weekend. And it's been so gratifying to have people come up to me and say this was my first time ever hearing a symphony live and I loved it. So I've never considered myself to be a crossover artist. Um, nothing against those who are. There's some brilliant musicians out there who do that. But that's that's not where my heart lies personally. Um, I'm all about the classical when I'm doing classical, you know what I mean? And with my metal band, I was doing metal on a Flying V electric six-string, and that had nothing to do with classical, except, of course, that metal's roots come from classical to a certain degree. But anyway, yeah, just using the covers um, as part of my community engagement efforts, and um, rather than, you know, doing any kind of, like, concert of that stuff. But what was really interesting is, as I was translating, and this is the late 90s, um, I was one of the first artists ever to try to play metal on a four-string unplugged violin. And so, I was really inventing sort of how to make some of these sound effects, how to approach it from a a physical, technical perspective, um, which was really breaking new ground. Turns out that Earl Manian, my friend who wrote this concerto, was literally doing the same thing in New York at the same time, but we didn't yet know about each other. And um, he ended up taking his experimentation into this uh, amazing realm where he now has a string quartet that plays original stuff that is, you know, for acoustic string quartet, except really um, like their heavy metal compositions. And yeah, and so I actually knew of his other band, um, which was a a, a plugged-in um, electric band, um, but without guitars, where he was playing a seven-string electric violin. And um, writing all of the songs himself. And I really just was um, very intrigued by his songwriting voice and and the music that he was coming up with and doing it on the violin. And that's when I said, well, can you write something for me for, for my acoustic that I could do in a classical recital? And there's such a strong tradition of this, of course, with Bartok, um, you know, using Hungarian folk music and bringing it into the art music realm or Dvorak with Czech folk music or, of course, all the 20th century stuff that's incorporated elements of jazz. And so it was time for heavy metal to enter the realms of classical. So this is real classical music, but with these kind of metal and extreme music genres as its roots. And I, I couldn't be more thrilled to that this finally exists in the world. And this is so interesting because you paired this new concerto that Earl Manin wrote for you with Shostakovich's violin concerto. And one of the things that I love about that is you've said that this concerto by Shostakovich holds a very special place among metal enthusiasts. Can you talk about why that is? Yeah, so Shostakovich's music in general, gosh, well, there was a, a long-standing Facebook group called I Headbang to Shostakovich, where people would post, you know, their favorite movements of chamber music or symphonic music. 
if you go out on YouTube, you can find plenty of electric guitar covers of quartet movements or, or you know, orchestral movements. Uh, so his output in general is very beloved by those who listen to metal and classical. Um, but I, I think the reason that it connects so much is that it's full of some of the same emotions You know, it's obviously translated through a slightly different language, but coming to some of the same, um, the same impact. You know, he, we all know that Shostakovich was living under this repressive Soviet regime where he was afraid for his life, literally. You know, if one of his compositions was not accepted by Stalin and stuff like that. The violin concerto itself actually includes some what I consider to be like social justice protest moments. Where he's using klezmer music um, to really highlight the injustice happening to Jewish people at the time, as he did in the Eighth Quartet or the Bobby Yar Symphony. And, you know, so he actually had to hide this concerto for a number of years in a drawer um, before it could even be premiered. And it got premiered only after Stalin died because it was that dangerous. Like, Stalin would have heard this piece and known that Shostakovich was basically, like, saying that things were horrible and instead of, you know, rah-rah. There's just, like, you can feel that oppression in the music. You can feel the fear and the anguish and, you know, explosions of anger and, um, and strength and vulnerability and just all of this mixed together. And, you know, of course, there's lots of um, troubling things going on in our world today, which Earl's concerto reflects. And so, you know, these, these kinds of pieces are timeless. Obviously, um, there is no more Soviet regime, but there's plenty of bad stuff going on in, in our society. And so um, this music speaks to us um, you know, just as strongly as it did back when it was written. And um, yeah, there was no other concerto that I could think of as the perfect one to pair with Earl's than, than Shostakovich's. Tell me what you love the most about Shostakovich's violin concerto. And if you could even give me an example of where in that concerto you just get so moved when you're playing it. Yeah, well, the, the fun bits, of course, are like, towards the end of the cadenza when it just goes crazy. And then when it, the tempo drops towards the end of the last movement, which literally in, in metal music with a subito tempo change like that is the moment when the mosh pit erupts. Everybody starts 
like you know slamming into each other this this special kind of dancing I, that you might you might consider it dancing I suppose um, yeah so just that moment is where you just start headbanging and just feel like the music just erupts. But actually, like, the older I've gotten and, you know, the more aware of history I am and everything else, like, what moves me so deeply um, is particularly the first movement. There are extended sections of pianissimo, and it's interesting. Like, performers have no problem staying loud for a long time, but somehow we rebel against staying soft for, you know, more than a short while. You know, we want to, like, let the phrases blossom a bit and have some variety and, you know, all of our musical instincts. But what he's actually doing is, like, purposefully making you not allowed to do that. Like, you have to stay soft. You have to stay soft. And it's this this fear and this hiding and um, all of that just so raw and this this delicate playing, but it's like so so sad and and just longing and I don't know. There's something just so incredible about it going on and on and on until you almost can't take it in the first movement there. The new concerto on your recording is called Dependent Arising, and it's for violin and orchestra, and it was commissioned by the conductor on this recording, Tito Munoz, and he had it commissioned specifically for you. Why did he want to do that? So what happened is after I asked Earl to write an unaccompanied piece for me that I could use on classical recitals... I ended up premiering it in a New York recital, and Tito Munoz, um, the music director of the Phoenix Symphony, um, actually lives in New York and happened to be in the audience. And he liked Earl's piece so much that he asked Earl to write a symphonic work, um, but Earl wasn't quite as experienced in as, and I can say this because he says this all the time, you know, he didn't feel that he was comfortable and he had the the experience behind him yet to do something for standalone orchestra, even though he'd been writing chamber music for years. So he thought if he could write something for violin and orchestra, being a violinist himself, um, that that would be, you know, a more achievable entry point. <laughs> As it turns out, you know, he ended up orchestrating this brilliantly, and there are lots of sections just for the orchestra, and he would have been just fine. But um, I, I, of course, was thrilled to get to be in on this project, and so it ended up being that the Phoenix Symphony um, commissioned Earl to write a violin concerto for me to play. And, uh, yeah, it's it, it was such an interesting process of experimentation because there were certain types of effects that you get from... Um, the genre from the usual instrumentation from the genre of, for example, death metal that uh, we had to translate to the symphony orchestra. (laughs) 
decided early on not to use a rock drum kit because that would have been an easy solution in terms of doing all those things, but then the balance of volume would have been highly problematic. You know, the drums would have been too loud, and then you would have had to try to put them behind plexiglass, and then you would have needed a mic and a monitor and maybe some amplification, and it just would have opened a whole can of worms, and we thought, let's write this for normal orchestra, but make it capture these effects. And we got to workshop it with the University of Arizona Symphony, and then with another um, young orchestra, not kids, but like a, um, you know, college grads orchestra in Chicago along the way at two different points in time to just really figure all of this out. And um, yeah, really like doing something that had never been done before. And it was, I love every time I get to collaborate with a living composer, but um, to witness this particular process where not only was he capturing his own voice, but actually doing something in classical that had never been done before was absolutely fascinating. Can you talk a little bit about the emotional journey that the listener experiences as they hear this work? Yeah, so... Gosh, I mean, starting at the last movement. The last movement is, um, I can't pronounce it, but um, Earl is a practicing Buddhist, and hence the title of the entire piece, which is um, dependent arising, meaning that everything in life is connected to everything else, that nothing is independent of everything else. Um, And something called the Heart Sutra um, is the last movement where it's like embodying wrath, but he explains that wrath is different than anger. Like a common analogy is a mother slapping the hand of a child as they're about to touch the hot stove. So it's like um, going and going until you achieve some kind of a catharsis. definitely hear that in the music. It's like relentless and feels very empowering by the end. The second movement is actually quite tragic. was inspired. Um, He came up with the melody in his head the day of the funeral of um, a dear friend who had died far too young, a wonderful cellist in New York um, who passed away from cancer. And his loss affected many, many people in the scene. And and so this is um, actually the, the whole thing about the crows. I don't remember exactly the, I don't have the disc in front of me, but the movement title is about um, something about the crows carrying him home. Well, he talks about how Buddhist monks will sit with a corpse in an open courtyard. And at one point in their guided meditation, one of the monks is supposed to imagine himself, his own 
um, body or soul being carried away by crows, and it's part of part of the process of grieving and of um, accepting death. And the first movement, as first movements tend to be, is uh, the most wide-ranging and dramatic. Yeah, it just really covers the whole gamut of emotions, um, one to another, and is really a very powerful piece. It's definitely you know, darker than a lot of classical. But of course you have something like Mahler Symphony Number no. 6, which is, oh, how does it describe the first nihilistic piece of classical music? So <laughs> Earl's Concerto is not as bleak as Mahler 6 by any stretch, but it's definitely every bit as ripping. I was watching an interview with Earl, and he was talking about, or maybe this is in the liner notes, I think it's actually in your liner notes, how the whole concept of oppression, which Shostakovich experienced, but how there's also this kind of feeling of oppression and why that attracts people to metal. That a lot, oftentimes it's like people who feel like, you know, like they're oppressed by society or... Do you know what I'm talking about? Well, absolutely, because um, you might not guess it, but I actually grew up in a working-class neighborhood with a mother who was taking care of my sisters and me and a father who was frequently unemployed. And Earl's father was a definitely more responsible dude than my dad, you know, but he was always working two or three jobs um, to keep his family afloat. And, um, and his mom was working nights. So, you know, for both of us, it was an interesting experience to be attending, you know, pre-college conservatory and music school where, um, you know, I was the only kid from the city and not the suburbs. And, and Earl also was, you know, there weren't other kids from his neighborhood going off to Manhattan School and Manus and everything. And so, yeah, it was, I think that background that we share is also why we share. I mean, not that, I mean, it's definitely an over-stereotype that only working-class people listen to heavy metal, and that's not at all true. Um, but certainly there is that correlation quite strongly, and I think it does have to do with maybe a somewhat feeling of, of powerlessness and getting this feeling of being uplifted from listening to this intense music. That it gives you, it gives you bravery, it gives you hope. That was what I was curious about because, I mean, I know people who are metal fans outside of you. And, you know, for me, I mean, I guess I think about that now, like, you know, when you're in that maybe high school, college, you know, when you're trying to figure things out, I could see where that would be like, yeah, that definitely fills in my feelings about <laughs> the world right now. So that's kind of well, curious. Well, for people who aren't familiar with, with heavy metal, you know, it's also just like classical embodies, you know, music from all over the planet for many, many centuries. Um, heavy metal is a subset of rock, but but metal is an umbrella term for so many sub-genres. And I think what many people might 
might be more familiar with is, you know, glam metal, the kind of, you know, 80s hair bands that whose lyrics are mostly about partying and debauchery and, um, yeah, that kind of cheesy stuff. And, you know, the serious metal genres couldn't be more different, both musically and lyrically. Like, just to give you a quick example, the first track of Metallica's fourth album is about environmentalism. Um, it's about the state of the world, and the music is much, much darker and heavier and and both you know slower when you're talking about doom metal or faster when you're talking about thrash metal or death metal and yeah it's not like the stuff that was ever on top 40 let's put it that way and i know when you were starting to create arrangements of metal songs to play on the radio you were discovering too that their structure and harmony was kind of surprising how complex it was. Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe give us an example? Absolutely. So, yeah, it blew my mind because I used to listen to metal to relax when I was a teenager, which sounds counterintuitive, but the but I was studying classical music all day long, you know, practicing my violin for seven or eight hours and then rehearsals and lessons and coachings and score study. And, you know, it was endless. And I couldn't turn off my thinking brain when I would listen to classical. So I could listen to classical for pleasure, but the pleasure came from, you know, if it was a piece I didn't know, how is that piece structured? If it was a piece I did know, how are they interpreting it? I couldn't just listen mindlessly. So with metal, I could turn off my mind. And I thought that it that I was drawn to metal of all the pop or rock possible genres that I thought I was drawn to it because it was so different than classical. But it turns out that, in fact, I must have been drawn to it because it's so close to classical, which because I wasn't using my thinking brain, I literally didn't realize until I started playing some of it in my early 20s. And I was like, oh my gosh, here's like this Vivaldi passage or here's this Brahms lick. And then I was like, that's interesting. And then shortly thereafter, I started meeting and hanging out with some of my favorite bands, and it was not a coincidence. Um, I mean, gosh, first time I talked to Marty Friedman, the longtime lead guitarist of Megadeth, and he was talking about Mozart's Symphonia Concertante and how late Mozart was different than earlier Mozart and the Isaiah Violin Sonatas and then the drummer from Slayer, whose iPod was filled with Berlioz, Rachmaninoff, and Liszt. Or even like Alice Cooper's guitarist, Carrie Kelly, who said to me, do you ever play music by the pre-Paganini Italian virtuosos like Tartini and Locatelli? <laughs> just like, wow. Like, you know, they're not just, you know, Brahms and Beethoven. Like, they're listening, like, pretty deeply, um, not just on that surface level. And um, so that was just really cool to to realize. Um, I mean, I knew all the great guitarists practiced the Paganini Caprices, and one of Eddie Van Halen's famous guitar solos even incorporates a bit of a Kreutzer etude of all things. Because he was literally practicing his Kreutzer violin etudes on the electric guitar to get his chops going. But it's not just licks and notes. It's also just the feel of the music. The lead singer of Iron Maiden talks about being inspired by operatic sound. So, yeah, the two genres are often hand in hand. And what the the cultural um, stereotypes that I try to dispel are, you know, if you're curious about some rock music, 
but you're mostly a classical person, you don't have to feel afraid to go to, to one of those venues. Everybody's very friendly. Everybody's nice. Like, you know, you're not going to get hurt or something. And if you're a rock person and you listen to classical, but are, um, you know, feel a bit of trepidation setting foot in a concert hall, like no worries. You don't have to put on a suit and tie. Just put on maybe your nicest jeans and come down and, you know, everybody's going to welcome you. So, um, yeah, I love it when when people get outside their comfort zone and discover some more music in their life because the more good music the better. So I'm curious, have you shared any of this with your daughter, Sylvia? I mean, is she finding a passion for metal as well? Yeah, well, like with, you know, R-rated movies, there are certain things that um I'm not going to let her listen to until it's age appropriate. Um but certainly some of the classic stuff um she's started to enjoy. Um, it's interesting. Her favorite non-classical genre, besides you know the things we both love, like Scottish fiddling, um, she really loves '70s singer-songwriters. So she'll always turn on like Peter Paul and Mary or Bob Dylan or Pete Seeger. She loves protest songs. <laughs> it's really interesting. Um, but yeah, so she's listened to some of the good early Metallica and some of the um, British wave stuff, and um, and actually. For my record release party, which took place at a metal bar last week, um, Sylvia joined Earl and me in some trio versions that I put together um, with a Black Sabbath Ozzy Osbourne medley, um, Little Vivaldi Summer, and Metallica Master of Puppets. And she was she was jamming away with us, so that was super fun. Oh, we need a video of that. <laughs> <laughs> In putting together this project, what did you discover about yourself, Rachel, that maybe even surprised you? Well, um, kind of going outside the specific music, I have to acknowledge the fact that this was done during the height of COVID. Um, you know, we didn't do anything that was going to be dangerous, of course, but we definitely took risks in terms of would the project actually get pulled off <laughs> because vaccines weren't quite there yet. So there were all these protocols of testing every day before we went to the studio. And, you know, what happens if we lose a bassoonist? And then we had like all these other people on call. In fact, Earl got COVID four days before the session was set to start. We, I guess, could have recorded it without him. I mean, he already wrote it. Tito already knew what, how he wanted it interpreted, but it would have been, you know, really disappointing if he hadn't been there to say, yeah, you're nailing it, or just to in, in have the reward of him, for himself to hear it being recorded live by this, you know, one of the world's great orchestras. So, um, yeah, he ended up recovering just in time to get on, like, the last possible flight to get him there. And it was, yeah, just, I think it was meant to be because it was such a sort of... Um, statistically unlikely thing that we were able to actually pull off at that at that moment in time and and then just the the stamina not just the physical stamina to play all these notes and Earl's piece is very extreme um, in terms of just the the technical demands not in terms of Paganini type tricks but in terms of just sheer fast you know wild playing Uh, 
um, one of the hardest things I've ever done. And to do that, you know, in a session when you have to get it right, you know, like you only have a couple of tries, <laughs> the clock's going to run out. Um, and to do that and, and the Shostakovich and to bring um, the emotions to that again and again, you know, as you're doing take after take. And But what I found is somehow just such joy in creating this dark music with these wonderful musicians and, and the commitment that everyone had and, um, you know, being able to to express all of this. It's almost like you come out the other side and you're filled with more joy than you entered with. It doesn't bring you down. It's really the opposite. Rachel Barton Pine, uniting the worlds of classical music with metal on Dependent Arising. That's new classical tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Mocker.